Welcome to Tech Talk Digital Supply Chain Podcast, where we will help you eliminate the noise and focus on the information and inspiration that you need to transform your business, impact supply chain success, and enable you to replace risky inventory with valuable insights. Join your Tech Talk host, Corinne Bursa, the 2020 Supply Chain Pro to Know of the Year. With more than 25 years of supply chain and technology expertise and the scars to prove it, Corinne has the heart of a teacher and has helped nearly 1,000 customers transform their businesses and tell their success stories. Join the conversation, share your insights, and learn how to harness technology innovations to drive tangible business results. Buckle up, it's time for Tech Talk, powered by Supply Chain Now. All right, well, welcome Supply Chain Movers and Shakers. This is Corinne Bursa, and I wanna thank you for tuning in today to Tech Talk. This episode is gonna be interesting. We're gonna to bring together two important initiatives that are happening in the industry. So a combination of digital supply chain, which is what we do here on Tech Talk, but we're also gonna talk about the important opportunities around sustainability. So bringing together digital supply chain and sustainability and to share his perspective with us is Tom Raftery, who is the global VP and futurist and innovation evangelist for SAP. Tom, it's great to have you here. Please tell our, our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Corinne. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, my name is Tom Raftery, as you say. I am originally Irish, now living in the south of Spain, just outside Seville. I work for SAP. I have that, I think, really cool title, Global VP, Futurist and Innovation Evangelist that I made up myself. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of. I was recruited into SAP in 2016 as an IoT evangelist. And then shortly after, and that's because I had a background in IoT and energy, that kind of whole space. I, I was a former industry analyst in that space. So when I when I came in, as I said, I was an IoT evangelist. But shortly after I, I joined SAP, the responsibility for IoT was given to another group within SAP. So I approached my manager and I said, you know, Thomas, my the, the IoT function has changed organization. I don't suppose I could be calling myself an IoT evangelist any longer. He said, I guess not. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, what if I call myself an innovation evangelist? And he said, that's fine with me. So suddenly I was an innovation evangelist. And in fact, it made more sense, really. IoT in 2016 was the new hotness, so it was a cool title to have. But of course, nobody was coming to us in SAP and saying, can I have an IoT, please? Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, IoT in and of itself is useless because you need to have that whole suite of innovation portfolio around IoT. You need to have the comms, you need to have the analytics, you need to have the big data, you know, to make sense and to analyze and to 
throw AI at it and to throw machine learning at it. And, you know, so without all those other innovation topics, IoT by itself is useless. So the, and it was what I was talking about anyway, the whole innovation topic, not just IoT. So it was actually a more accurate job title. So yeah, innovation evangelist and, and futurist as well, because a lot of what I've always done is look at what's happened in the past look at where we are today and then draw trend lines forward and say, okay, well, that means in the next X years, we're going there. And uh, that was a big part of what I was doing as an industry analyst. And it's a big part of what I do in SAP as well. So do you have to take a crystal ball with you everywhere you go? I mean, as a futurist, <laughs> I'm looking for, you know, always looking for good stock picks or, you know, what, what I should expect in the well, in the immediate future. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, stock picks, not so much. I have a, a, <laughs> a, a poor enough record in that. Just because I, I'm absolutely useless at finance. I, and, and it's just, I don't have that finance gene. So I don't own any stocks. I don't dabble in them. Uh, the only stocks I have are SAP ones. And those are because I get them, uh, you know, <laughs> given to me every month, you get a small, you know, portion or, or an ability to buy them. Uh, so th those are the only stocks I actually own. Back in the day when we used to use checkbooks, I used to say, I, I can't even balance a check, never mind a checkbook. So <laughs> I, I don't have it. But, you know, other stuff, yeah, I'm, I'm good at finance, not a clue. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I'll continue on the way I am then. So but tell me this, Tom. So our listeners should know that you have a well-regarded podcast around digital supply chain. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about that, but then I want to talk about your new um, your new show that you just introduced. Thank you. So yeah, I have the Digital Supply Chain Podcast, which I started in, I started it on the Apple Podcast in June 2019. But in fact, the first interview episode, so the first episode in June was the intro episode, just so you can get it set up. But the actual very first interview episode was with a, a then colleague called Marcel Fulmer. And that went out and I think if I remember correctly, I think it was the 3rd of July 2019. So the podcast has been going since July 2019. And for the first few months, for six or eight months or more, it was one episode every two weeks. And a lot of that was down to the fact that my role at the time meant I was doing a huge amount of travel. In 2019, mm -hmm. I did about 40 keynotes in about 38 countries. So pushing out an episode every two weeks was was challenging. And a lot of the time the interviews were done while I was sprinting between terminals and airports going for tight connections. And oh. it was crazy stuff. But then pandemic, lockdown, February 2020, no more travel. And I said, okay, well, let's pivot here. So I invested a bit in hardware and software for podcasting and video. And I upped my game. And now the digital supply chain podcast is putting out two episodes a week instead of one every two weeks, it goes out every Monday and every Friday at 6am CET. And so if you're Pacific, that's uh, 
the night before, Thursday, 9 p.m. Pacific. So yeah, it goes at 6 a.m. Uh, Mondays and Fridays. And it's 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 just a, a an interview style podcast like this one, where we talk about all aspects of the supply chain and how it's being digitized. Uh, everything from, in SAP, we talk about design to operate as, as you know, mm-hmm. the whole scope of the supply chain. So everything from the design to the plan, to the make, to the deliver, to the operation of the asset. So the the fact that we include the operation means you're looking at things like predictive maintenance and even kind of outcome economy where you're doing product as a service. So all that we and we cover all of that in our software and like cover all of that in the podcast. Having said that, the podcast is not SAP focused. Uh, it's highly unusual uh, that you would hear SAP product names used in the podcast. It's more about best practices and trends in where things are going in supply chain and the best way to do things. Well, congratulations. Congratulations on, on the cadence and, and, um, and publishing more often. I'm sure that your audience really appreciates it. And, and we hit we hit episode we hit episode 100 just a couple of days ago. So oh, all that right. Was cool. yeah. Well done, well done. <laughs> I was delighted. I was delighted. Nice tyranny of round numbers, I guess, but I was delighted. Yes, I, I'm a big one for milestones, so that's a nice <laughs> one. Let's talk about your new offering in the marketplace. So the new Climate 21 podcast and the focus of that particular show. Sure. So the, as you say, I started a new podcast in December of 2020 uh, called Climate 21. And the 21 in Climate 21 isn't a reference to the year 2021. It's a reference to the 21st century because it is a climate focused podcast. And the climate problem we have is not one that's going to go away in 2021. It's one that is going to be with us for the majority of this century. So it's also a reference to SAP's Climate 21 program. SAP has this program called Climate 21, which is one where we are building in the ability to track your emissions across your entire business process portfolio. So every single thing you do right now, you can calculate your, the, the financial implications of doing all the stuff you do using our software, uh, amongst other things. But with the Climate 21 initiative, it means that soon you'll be able to calculate, report, et cetera, not just the financial implications of it, but also the climate implications of everything you do in your organization. And of course, this has huge implications for supply chain because you can then start looking down through your supply chain and choosing which suppliers based on their carbon implications for your supply chain, as well as the financial implications of choosing a particular supplier. But that's that's the SAP Climate 21 initiative. The Climate 21 podcast takes its name from that. But actually, the focus of the podcast is to surface and showcase successful climate emissions strategies and stories from our customers, from our partners, from our competitors, if they're game, and showcase them so that we can educate everyone on the ways to get your climate emissions down and inspire people in ways to do it if, 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 they're, if they come across ways that it hadn't occurred to them, for example. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, supply chain plays a critical role in this because everything from product design, how a product is designed, the materials that are used, 
the packaging as it's identified and, and becomes part of the brand in the marketplace. And then, of course, the actual production process and the movement of those goods to market. So, I mean, there are opportunities all the way through, right through disposal or reuse of those goods and, from a circular economy. And designed economy. for disposal and mm. or designed for reuse at end of life. Yeah, it, it, it's hugely important. And it, it's interesting that you say packaging because a couple of times when I've done keynotes talking on topics like this, you know, I'll ask the audience, okay, Put up your hand if you've got an Apple device, like an iPad or an iPhone. And, you know, depending on where I am, 50 to 80% of the hands will go up. And then I'll say, okay, keep your hand up if you still have the box that the device came in. Mm. Almost all the hands stay up. And it's because, to your point, the, the design of the packaging that Apple puts into its products is so good. People hang on to them. And, you know, if I said that about almost any other company, most of the hands would go down. But it's just a thing with Apple. They they design their packaging so well, people keep it for, you know, end of life. Maybe they're selling it on when they're getting a new device to a neighbor or a friend or a relative. And they, they give it with the packaging very often. I, I agree wholeheartedly. It's it's interesting that you bring up the, the Apple pack, packaging because I do. I think I've kept the Apple packaging, the boxes are just beautiful, right? Yeah. They're just a well-designed, there's not a lot of waste inside of them either, right? Correct. So it's very elegant yeah. from that perspective. And you can see as well that they they say within their packaging that it's sustainably sourced uh, fiber mm -hmm. or whatever it is. So it's, it's all, and you, they have a great reputation in this space. Yeah. For the record, I also keep all Tiffany and company <laughs> packaging, just in case anybody's wondering, if which I is ever beautiful get and distinctive myself. as well. So, um, in fact, I think people just, you know, they love to hold on to the bags and the boxes as much as wearing the, the jewels and the goodies that come inside. So, I, I'll take, um, so I'll that's take a great your word point. on that, Corinne. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Let me ask this question. Are there any particular industries that you feel like are leading the adoption around some of their sustainability and supply chain initiatives coming together? Good question. And it, it's a hard enough one to answer. I think if we look at sustainability initiatives, and you know, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think the technology industries are doing a huge amount. And I had, for example, the chief environmental officer of Microsoft on the podcast just before Christmas, his name is Lucas Joppa. And he talked about some of the things that Microsoft are doing. And it was really impressive because they're pretty much the gold standard of, of what you can do in this space. They, for example, Microsoft rolled out a carbon fee within their organization uh, for anything you want to do. So if you want to purchase office furniture, not alone does it does it cost you the financial cost, but there's also a carbon fee associated with the actual cost, the carbon implication of purchasing that office or creating that office furniture, creating and transporting that office furniture. If you want to take a flight, if you want to host an event, whatever it is you want to do within Microsoft as a Microsoft employee or a Microsoft group, there's a carbon fee associated with it. And that carbon fee that you pay goes to the sustainability organization within Microsoft. And they rolled this out first in 2012. So they've been doing wow, this. Wow, 2012. Yeah, 2012. That is they, impressive. Exactly. 
Exactly. They've been doing it for eight years now, and now they're rolling it out to their suppliers as well. Mm -hmm. So they are requiring now in RFPs, all of their suppliers to report on their carbon emissions associated with whatever they're supplying to Microsoft. Now, this isn't a heavy-handed approach. Microsoft, as you would expect, are going to take time to do this and go through a whole education process to do this. But the fact is, it will be a requirement, I think, from this year onwards. I think they started doing it last year. It will be a requirement for anyone supplying anything to Microsoft to be able to report the carbon emissions associated with that. But not just that, they've gone further. They've said that they are going to not be carbon neutral or net zero, as a lot of organizations have set mm -hmm. their goal to be. Rather, they're going to be carbon negative. So they are going mm -hmm. to emit negative carbon emissions. So in other words, they're going to suck back in more carbon than they carbon emit than they during out. their operations. <laughs> and so much so that their aim is by 2050 to have sucked enough carbon out of the atmosphere to account for all the carbon they have emitted to date since they started operations in 1975. Mm. I mean, wow. Like I said, gold standard. Yeah. The, yeah. The, actu the actual technologies to do this don't exist today to suck that carbon out of the atmosphere. It, it, literally, they don't exist. So what have Microsoft done to address this fact? They've set aside a billion dollars in a, an investment fund to invest in companies who are developing the technologies for carbon sequestration. Hmm. So, I mean, Fascinating, again, wow. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's exciting. An, and they've put an RFP into the market for, I think it's a million tons of CO2. So, you know, they're making the market and they're helping organizations develop the technologies through through a billion dollar investment fund that they've set up. And they're, you know, it's it's a it's an incredible trifecta. So you you asked which industries are, are doing the, the best mm -hmm. in this. I would have to say Microsoft are, you know, gold standard in that front. Yeah, that, that is really, really impressive. So is the CO2, is that the, the gold standard from a measurement perspective, or are there other measures of sustainability that our audience should think about? Oh, absolutely. So there's this whole ESG topic that I've addressed in a couple of the Climate 21 podcasts, where ESG stands for Environment, Sustainability and Governance. And it covers everything, absolutely everything. And it's becoming a really, really important topic. The old uh, CSR uh, that mm -hmm. some of the listeners might be familiar, familiar with, Corporate Social yep. Responsibility, that's going away. And it, it was very much something that was for many organizations done uh, as, you know, part of the marketing organization. So, you know, it was it was more a PR exercise than an actual sustainability agenda. Not for all companies. Some some companies were very genuine about it, I have to say. Uh, but for, for others, not so much. ESG, though, is different because since the Paris Climate Accord and since 2020, there has been a shift in the investment community. And the investment community, you know, the flows of capital that they control are now looking very seriously at ESG requirements and reporting from organizations because it speaks to risk. 
and the investment managers and the risk assessors are very they're not very risk tolerant, shall we say. So they don't want to be putting money into places where there is risk and carbon is seen increasingly as a risk. But your question was more around, is it just carbon? And no, it is the whole gamut of ESG, which is everything from human rights, labor relations, uh, water. Have you got slavery in your supply chain? Uh, are you using conflict minerals? So, uh, and... There is no standardized way of reporting some of these things as yet. So this is going to be a huge thing moving forward. Uh, there will need to be standards agreed on. The way we have standards for reporting financial uh, reports today, there's still no agreed methodology of reporting on ESG, uh, even even across industries, because some industries, it's completely, some of the ESG things you would talk about are completely irrelevant, whereas they're highly relevant in others. You know, uh, you, you don't think of, for example, child slavery in the car industry. Uh, mm -hmm. You might you might in the in the in the mobile phone industry because of some of the tantalum and conflict minerals, for example, that are used in mobile phones. But that's less of an issue in automobiles or in, you know, the manufacture of eyewear, you know, yeah. any of these kind of things, you know. So it depends from industry to industry what what things you want to measure or are responsible for measuring. But it's it's very much up in the air right now, but it is becoming increasingly important for organizations because as i said the investment community are looking at this more and more it's becoming it's coming more and more under scrutiny so boards are becoming increasingly aware mm -hmm. of it so that will drive it down well let, let's come back a little bit to supply chain and and what supply chain operations are doing around sustainability as well or green initiatives for the business. So one thing our listeners may not know is you are really passionate and extremely knowledgeable about the transportation industry. Obviously, there's a huge transition underway going from fossil fuels to electric vehicles and, and other modes of transport. What do you think, Tom, how far away are we from really making a transition to electric fleets? in the industry for things like delivery of product? So it's happening at different paces in different regions, the shift from internal combustion engines to electric fleets. And it's happening as well. It depends on the type of vehicle, the class of vehicle we're talking about. China is well ahead of almost every other region in this because they've had legislation in place requiring automotive manufacturers to manufacture a certain percentage of their fleet as electric. So they have access to it. Uh, many places in China, for example, their bus fleets are 100% electric today. There, there's The last time I saw the numbers, there was something like 420,000 fully electric buses operating mm -hmm. in China, You know, whereas there was something at the same time like 400 operating in North America. So, you know, they're way ahead of everyone in, in that regard. Now, what people might be unaware of about electric vehicles is they are 
significantly cheaper to operate and maintain than our internal combustion engine vehicles. A typical internal combustion engine vehicle has around 2,000 moving parts in its drivetrain, all of which need to be lubricated and looked after and so on. Whereas in an electric drivetrain, there's about 20 moving parts. So that's Wow, wow. You know, that's 1980 fewer parts that can go wrong. So the maintenance associated with electric vehicles is a fraction of that associated with internal combustion engine vehicles. And then there's the cost of the fuel. Fueling a diesel bus typically costs, I think if I remember correctly, around 75 cent per mile over the lifetime of the bus, whereas it's 20 cent per mile for an electric one. So fueling and maintenance costs for electric vehicles are a fraction of that for internal combustion engine ones. Uh, And of course, if you speak to any fleet manager, the two things that are top of mind for them are the costs of fuel and the cost of maintenance. Those are their two main costs. Mm -hmm. So getting them down is a big thing. Now, there's still the issue that the upfront cost of an electric vehicle is still higher than the upfront cost of an equivalent internal combustion engine vehicle. But of course, if you're getting them on a lease, you're paying by month. And if your monthly fuel and monthly maintenance costs are reduced significantly, then your monthly outgoing for the lease, you know, is going to be balanced out. So suddenly, the whole issue around cost goes away. So we're seeing a big flip And it's going to be increasing because the number of and the types of electric vehicles that are available in the market are increasing enormously Mm -hmm. just in the last year. And in this coming year, there's going to be a huge shift. We're seeing a lot of what in the US or North America are called trucks, for example, you know, the the F-150s and the Hummers and those kind of things. Those are going electric this year and next year uh, and the Cybertruck. So those are all coming to market this year and next year. And, you know, those are the biggest vehicle class uh, at a consumer mm-hmm. level and also at an industrial level. Uh, those are highly, highly attractive and, and highly, highly purchased. So those, because those are going electric, those are going to flip very fast because, again, they're very attractive. They've got massive pulling power. They've got uh, even, even better pulling power than internal combustion engines. They're more powerful. So, you know, and the costs are going to come down even more. So those buses, as I've said already, the school bus fleet uh, is going to go electric very fast as well because there's a secondary business possible with school buses. School buses are kind of unique in that they operate twice a day, morning Mm -hmm. and evening. For the rest of the time, they're lying idle. So, of course, these school buses have big batteries in them. They can therefore be what's called a virtual power plant. They can operate Mm -hmm. to while they're not moving, suck in energy from the grid, particularly if they're in an area with a high penetration of renewables and there's excess energy being generated by their renewables, they can suck that energy in and store it. And then later on in the day, for example, let's say five or six o'clock in the evening, they're back at base because they've dropped the kids home. Parents have arrived home from work assuming we're all back at work again. <laughs> Parents have arrived back. They start putting on the heating. They start putting on the appliances for cooking or whatever. So you get that evening spike in electricity. The buses can let, it, ah, let out, you know, let the, out source, the energy, right. become a source. So they are a virtual power plant. So it's it, virtual power plants in the energy space are analogous to cloud computing in the technology mm-hmm. space. It's a, you know, you aggregate lots of small sources of power 
into a single virtual power plant in the same way you aggregate lots of servers into a large cloud delivered server uh, in, in yeah. cloud computing. So it's the same idea. So buses are a big one. Uh, motorbikes are already there. 33% globally of motorbike sales today are fully electric. Cars are obviously a big one as well. Trucks, vans, all those kind of things. So they're all going electric and it's all down to the economics. I mean, if you think of school buses, do you want to have your kids going on a bus that is diesel and it's emitting fumes. And we all know how bad those fumes are for developing lungs, particularly whatever, but you know, your lungs or my lungs, uh, kids lungs are still developing and the damage that's done by the fumes out of the back of a diesel bus are horrific. Whereas, you know, nice, quiet electric bus, no fumes. I'd be happy to put my kids on one of those. So uh, that that's, you know, the, the whole, the whole market is shifting. It's down to, as I say, economics, but the climate benefits, the benefits yep. to air quality, the benefits to quality of life in cities from reduced noise pollution. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a huge amount there. We're seeing other things. Trucks are going to go electric as well. Uh, 40 ton trucks will be electric in the next two, three years. So the new ones are starting. Scania have announced that they are going, they're abandoning their, their aims to do hydrogen trucks and they're going all out on fully electric because the technology is there now to do the 40 ton 18 wheeler trucks as full electric yep. trucks. Yep. Tesla have their semi, et cetera. So that's going to, they're going to be coming to the fore in the next two, three years. So, and we got to acknowledge as well, President Biden's announcement a couple of days ago, where he said that all federal fleets are going to switch to electric. He's mandated as, as one of his executive orders that the whole federal fleet of about 645,000 vehicles yes. are yes. going to go electric. And yeah. that's such a demand signal to send to the market. It's incredible it because if any manufacturers were dithering going, oh, I don't know if there's going to be any demand for these things suddenly, whoa, 645,000, you know, and that's, that's American because yeah, yeah. It's, it's American manufacturers with a specific uh, requirement to have a set percentage of the internal components also be manufactured in America. So, you know, that's, and, and so you've got GM, you've got Rivian, you've got Tesla, you've got Ford, you've got VW from their plant in Chattanooga. There are probably others. No, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any others, but there's bound to be more as well that I've missed out on, but lots of them there anyway. So, Tom, you're sounding more like a financial analyst to me than uh, the, <laughs> at the start of our discussion today. But let's let's talk about, you know, finding the green and being green, right? Finding the profitability in directing a sustainable business. Now, obviously, consumers are willing to pay for great design that's also, you know, sustainable when you think of Tesla, which you just mentioned, right? Um they look at that as a premium offering and one that that offers unique um, status and and capabilities as a part of that kind of purchase. It's important to board of directors, as we've just talked about from an ESG perspective and forward thinking about their business over the long term. But are you seeing just in general markets this increased focus in sustainability? Are customers willing to pay more in general for sustainable products? So two things there. The first is another trick you're missing out on, I think, when you consider the sustainability of organizations is that it also helps organizations with recruitment and retention. Mm. Because you know, do you want to work for a company that you know gets its energy from coal-fired 
power or do you want to work for that uh, utility company that has coal-fired power versus do you want to work for one that, you know, uh, operates a, a windmill farm or solar plant or something? It's It's obviously, there's a nice warm feeling about working for organizations that have the planet's best interest at heart, that recycle, uh, that have, you know, diversity and inclusion built into their recruitment, uh, that use renewable power and have stated aims of getting to net zero and so on and so on and so on. So that will help organizations with their recruitment, but it will also mm-hmm. help them with their retention. So th- those that's another very important aspect. But your, your question was around, will consumers pay more for products that are sustainable? And frankly, I think that's the wrong question because I don't think they should have to pay more for goods that are sustainable. I think they should have to pay more for goods that are non-sustainable mm. because sustainability by definition, when you are being more sustainable, you are getting waste out of your operations. So being more sustainable should lead to lower costs. Also, the cost of generating electricity from renewables is significantly cheaper than the cost of generating electricity from burning oil or gas or coal or nuclear. Uh, So green renewably generated electricity is actually significantly cheaper. So your electricity costs, if you're 100% renewable, should be cheaper than getting it from fossil fuels. Your transportation would be cheaper as well, as we've already mentioned. So your main carbon impacts should be cheaper. So your operations, your costs should all be cheaper, the more sustainable you are. So your goods should be cheaper. So it's, and and as we get more carbon pricing being built into uh, goods and services as well, because that is coming. If you don't have it in your area already, it is coming. It should mean that goods, goods that have a higher carbon content in them are more expensive. So I think the, the framing of the question is flawed and sustainable goods, as I say, in any operation that is more sustainable, you have already gotten rid of a lot of your waste by definition. So it should be cheaper. Ah, noted, noted. So, <laughs> so Tom, as we wrap up today, what one piece of advice or one recommendation you would have for our listeners today that are thinking about their roles in supply chain and how they can help to think more sustainably and put these practices in place? Is there one piece of advice you could offer? One piece of advice. Hmm. Um, just to inspire them, just to give them something to think about. Like, I love the way you just reframed my prior question to you about, <laughs> you know, are, are people willing to pay more? Yeah. I, I love that. But is there another piece of advice just in thinking about digital supply chain and their roles in supply chain and how they, you know, can inspire action in their own organizations? I think the best thing I could advise people to do is to read more about what's happening in the space or maybe listen to more podcasts like the Climate 21 podcast. Uh, But no, more seriously, yeah, read more, educate yourself more about it because it is going to be increasingly important. As we've talked about already, the it, it is now a board level topic, so it will be coming down from above, but also it should be coming up from below as well. It should be something that your consumers or your customers are interested in. It should be something that you're interested in, in making your organization better and in making 
therefore the planet better. So it should be something that everyone has top of mind all the time. How can I do this better? How can I do this with less of an impact? Is there any way I can change this process to make it, you know, tweak it maybe even slightly better? Should we think about recycling when we're doing this? Should we be designing this thing so that end of life, we can take back parts of it and reuse them for the next part? You know, all these, the the kind of circular level thinking, are the products we're using, are they made of items that can be recycled at end of life? Or can we maybe, if we go to something like product as a service, where we are uh, not selling the product, but giving it out, this is a whole new business model that many people are going to, I mean, everyone's heard of the kind of power by the hour that the kind of jet engine manufacturers like the GE and the Rolls-Royce went to other organizations are pursuing this now. And of course, the advantage of doing this means that you as the manufacturer, it is now very much not in your interest to have inbuilt obsolescence, which means the objects that you're designing them and manufacturing become much more sustainable because you're designing them so that they never fail and because you now own them and you don't want them to fail and you don't want to have to send engineers to site. So, you know, that's another possibility. Think about maybe going to the product as a service if you're not already, because it's a business model that guarantees you recurring income, which is always very nice. And it's better for the planet in that inbuilt obsolescence is no longer a thing. Or that you're willing to take advantage, you're willing to take responsibility for the recycling of those goods and, Correct. and the innovation cycle. So I think that's really important. Listen, Tom, this has been really interesting. There's so much more to learn in this area. I think we're going to have to have you back in the future as a futurist <laughs> and continue this conversation. I'd love it. But until then, Tom, how can our listeners connect with you? and learn more about what you're sharing. Sure. I'm on all the usual social media channels. I, I'm, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram, and so on and so on. So absolutely look me up there. There's not many Tom Rafteries out there, so I'm quite easy to find. Typically, I'll be the one with the hat in the profile picture. I wear yes. a fedora yes. typically. I, my email address is tom.raftery at sap.com. Feel free to hit me up there. The podcasts that you mentioned, Climate 21 and Digital Supply Chain, any podcast application, just go in and type in Climate 21. It'll be the first one that comes up or type in Digital Supply Chain. It'll be the first one that comes up, obviously. Or they're available at their, you know, through through the web. So just Google them and you'll find that they're they're, they're there at www.climate21podcast.com or www.digitalsupplychainpodcast.com because I've got zero imagination and also it helps with the search engine optimization to have those domains. (laughs) It makes it easy. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Well, Tom Rafferty, Global VP, Futurist and Innovation Evangelist with SAP. Thanks so much for joining us today. I, I hope that this conversation around digital supply chain and sustainability has helped to raise the IQ of our audience. I certainly have learned a few things today and I want to thank you for that. And on the topic of raising your supply chain IQ, I want to encourage our listeners to tap into many of the great resources that are available on supplychainnow.com and join us in the live streams. You may see Tom there, Um, but uh, we'd love to hear from you and have you chime in on those topics as well. So until next time, please check out Tech Talk, that's T-E-K-T-O-K, and subscribe to the Digital Supply Chain Podcast. You don't want to miss an episode. Thanks. Thanks so much, Karen.